Since we have only one more full day of silent practice together, and since this is the last time during this retreat, I'll have a chance to speak with all of you. There are several different themes that I'd like to try to weave together tonight. I'll speak for a short while and then we'll have questions and answers. First, I'd like to read a poem from Rilke that I read at the beginning of the course called The Man Watching. I can tell by the way the trees beat after so many dull days on my wearied window panes that a storm is coming and I can hear the far off fields say things I can't bear without a friend I can't love without a sister. The storm, the shifter of shapes, drives on across the woods and across time, and the world looks as if it had no age. The landscape, like a line in the psalm book, is seriousness and wait and eternity. What we choose to fight is so tiny. What fights with us is so great. If only we would let ourselves be dominated as things do by some immense storm, we would become strong too and not need names. When we win, it's with small things, and the triumph itself makes us small. What is extraordinary and eternal does not want to be bent by us. Whoever was beaten by this angel, who often simply declined the fight, went away proud and strengthened and great by that harsh hand that needed him as if to change his shape. Winning doesn't tempt that man. This is how he grows. By being defeated decisively by constantly greater beings. There is this war going on. It's the storm, the incessant battle with our own little minds. The I is constantly asserting itself and trying to manipulate and control what will happen so that our I can avoid pain and experience pleasure no matter how subtle. The lines in the poem that I wanted to speak on are the lines, I can tell that a storm is coming and I can hear the far off fields say things I can't bear without a friend, I can't love without a sister. I can't bear without a friend. I can't love without a sister. The Sangha. One of the three jewels that the Buddha gifted us with is being able to take refuge in the Sangha. The dictionary defines refuge as a protection or a shelter as from danger or hardship. 
a sanctuary, or anything to which one might turn for help or relief or escape. We take refuge in the Sangha as a protection. The Sangha is here for us when we need help. It's not just a coincidence that we're all together here, us particular people in this particular place. We are here as a consequence of past actions together. If one thinks for a few moments of the strong ties, negative and positive, that arise from one's blood relationships, one's early years of growing up within one's family or close relatives, One can imagine the extreme power within the Sangha. I've spoken with some of my groups that during an intensive retreat in silence, especially for three months, it's like going in for major surgery for one's mind, but without any anesthesia. One has to have a certain degree of trust in the people around one, in the staff, in the teachers, and each other for such an undertaking. Because one becomes very open and very vulnerable. There's so much that one goes through in this time together. We've all shared so much. There is an intimacy in this silent sanctuary that we've, we have grown close within, sometimes in spite of ourselves. There is such a full range of ups and downs and cruises, all the aversions and the irritation, the judgments, and then the appreciation, the attractions, We shared all the same interests and problems and experiences in this body-mind process. A mysterious and wonderful affection and understanding between us blossoms at times. (laughs) We learn to bear the storm all the difficulties within the protection of the Sangha, the protection of each other, brothers and sisters. Last year I lived for a short while with an old man named Raps who says, it is probable we meet only the persons in this world we deserve to meet or are supposed to meet, or are drawn to meet, like certain water drops down a stream, gliding over certain stones on the way to the sea. So we have this communion, a communion of energy, the Sangha, on our way to the sea, where we share and participate in looking as carefully as possible at life revealing itself, moment after moment. We keep hammering away at the sparkling diamonds of wisdom within us all. There is this vast reservoir of wisdom within our minds and within the Sangha that we share. Sometimes we can become so isolated in our torment, 
each of our agonizing movies. It can seem like no one could possibly be suffering like I'm suffering. Or the intensity of reaction to whatever is happening can be so overwhelming. It doesn't seem possible that there could even be one spark of detachment in the flood of anger or fear or numbness or despair or cynicism. It can all get so thick and cement-like in its imaginary reality. I keep having an increasing awe at the magnitude of self-hatred in all of us. It takes a certain respect and acknowledgement in each of us for how strong this negativity towards ourselves can be and how we all take turns feeling defeated to start having a deepening appreciation of the importance of the meditation and the Sangha's role in the healing. This is another line from Rilke. Sorrows, how we waste them, how we keep looking ahead at their sad length to see if maybe they'll end, when really they're nothing more than our winter foliage our dark evergreen, just one of the seasons of your hidden year, and not only season but setting, settlement, campground, the place we live. We're all being here, silently opening to the sorrows together in the settlement of IMS. There's such a power in this, strengthening our hearts and minds and simultaneously strengthening the communion of energy together, the Sangha. Several years ago, a good friend who lived nearby took his own life. He'd been trying to do it for 15 years, and he finally succeeded. It was quite a shock for the whole Sangha in this area of the planet. I had been on retreat at the time and came out of retreat to be with his family and friends. I remember it taking all of my energy just to try to stay minimally conscious. I drank a lot of chai, (laughs) ate a lot of chocolate. Uh, The pain of his death had a tremendous impact. And what touched me most during those days was the power of the Sangha. especially the understanding and wisdom that each person brought to the situation. Having people to support one in the way of understanding is so essential. To be able to share either silently or with words on so many of the levels that happen to try to understand the depth of this man's pain in his life and also to try to understand the helplessness we all felt in trying to help him and apparently failing. Seeing the suffering and the aversion to the suffering, the dukkha, (laughs) and then seeing also the anicca and the anatta in the situation 
all playing itself out in such a nightmarish way. While at the same time, the love that flowed was extraordinary between us all in learning to open to that much pain. And underneath it all, the trust that had to come that somehow it had to unfold that way for him. And we all do that for each other here. When we go to leave here, at times it's really hard to find people that have the same kind of understanding. And it can seem lonely. There can be a connection on some levels, but there can be a kind of loneliness on the level of sharing a kind of understanding. And that's why Sangha's so essential. There are so few areas in the world that you can go and get support for the I not to be exerting itself. There's a real preciousness in these sanctuaries. I used to work in environmental work, working at sanctuaries in a different way. Sanctuaries for the trees and the plants and the birds, insects. And at a certain point it seemed essential to support this kind of sanctuary. And they both seem to come together at this point in my life. as we all need protection. The Dalai Lama has said that no doctor can give one an injection for tranquility. The sense or even glimpse of tranquility within one's heart is our most important task and only we can do it, only we can create that. The word meditation is translated from the word bhavana. Bhavana means mental development. It is a process of introspection in this context, of self-correction, It's not a correction that comes from an outer authority that admonishes us what to do or not to do. It's developing an inner sense of authority, an inner sense of strength and wisdom. It's a process of beautifying the heart. The more we can do this for ourselves, have compassion for ourselves at the deepest level and then take on the commitment of seeing whenever we suffer, see what is happening as clearly as possible. In that way, we affect the Sangha and the planet and the universe. It's an ecology of the heart for our hearts are the center of the Sangha and of the universe. Then the five precepts are not commandments, but guidelines for not harming our friends during our lives on the planet. One can see that harming oneself or harming other beings has a direct effect on one's own mind 
and then the ecology of all of our hearts. When one genuinely sees this process, when one truly awakens to the interpenetrating nature of all of our energies, of all of our hearts, the more careful and gentle we can become with our actions and speech. This seeing things clearly, it's so simple and yet it's so hard to do. The more we can see clearly though, the more it affects our physical, mental, emotional and verbal behavior. The ecology of our hearts will manifest in our speech and our actions. My favorite line from the Buddha, which I'm sure all the people that see me are totally sick of hearing, is that a thought is just a thought and a feeling is just a feeling and a sensation is just a sensation. Sometimes I walk down to the field in front of this building across the street, the field on the left. Walk down into the middle of the field and sit down where the deer sometimes will lay and the grass is flat. And it seems like it's just like the sea, the grass, there's so much grass, it's just like the sea. And there's this huge sky, infinite sky. And at that time, it's so simple sometimes to see thoughts just as thoughts, or feelings just as feelings, or sensations just as sensations, because there's so much space. There's just this infinite space that thoughts will come and go in or feelings, or sensations. It's such a powerful and nourishing space that thoughts and feelings and sensations just vanish in the silence. Sometimes the wind will be very gentle there. And when it when one's actually with that gentleness, there's glimpses of the kind of space that we're all learning to develop in our minds. It's what bhavana is all about, finding space to accommodate whatever is happening in the moment. This space, this quality of the mind and heart, when they're at rest, is vast and gentle and awesome and peaceful. It's not just in the field, it's in our hearts and minds whenever we open to that space. And this is where I think the power of the Sangha comes in, because the Sangha can support and nourish our endeavor to open. We can develop and strengthen our minds to be clear and shining. This is the great power of the Sangha. There's a quote from the Buddha, If for company you find a prudent friend who leads a good life and is wise, you should, overcoming all impediments, overcoming all impediments, keep their company joyfully, 
and mindfully. There was one other theme that I wanted to speak on, which is the importance of equanimity in the process of mental development. Equanimity has the characteristic of balancing the energy. It balances four factors. It balances faith and insight and effort and concentration. Effort and concentration can compete with each other, and so can faith and insight. When the mindfulness is really pure, it's because of equanimity. It's because these four factors have come to balance. With the effort, when one first starts to practice, sometimes it'll be in excess. And other times, one will get too complacent. It's equanimity that will bring the effort and the concentration into balance. And then when faith grows as one's practicing, If one thinks about it too much, instead of stay with the direct experience of what's happening, one goes off balance. Or if one's having insight into what is arising and passing, if one starts thinking about it too much again, one goes off balance. The reason why I wanted to mention this briefly is because it ties into seeing a thought just as a thought, (laughs) a feeling just as a feeling, and a sensation just as a sensation. It's that tremendous power of mind. It's when the mind is totally unshakable. That's when the mind really opens. Whenever we see anything, whether it's sadness or anger, if the thought comes through the mind, I hate myself, sometimes it can be so sticky. And that's when the equanimity isn't there. It's not The power of mind to not see that thought clearly isn't there. And that's when we go off balance and the mindfulness disappears. In many ways, this is a talk about taking refuge. In taking refuge in the Sangha, and taking refuge in the Dharma, and taking refuge in the Buddha. The Three Jewels. It's a kind of protection so that we can develop an ecology of our hearts. That affects ourselves, each other, and the universe.
questions? <laughs> As we move out of the silence now, how to remain open with an open heart without um, being shaken, without reacting to see? The question is, as the silence breaks, how to remain open. Do you have a, like a particular question about that? Like anything you're particularly concerned with, any area? Can you get a little more specific? How do you feel that affects you? In many ways, what you're bringing up is the difference between opening to someone's pain and having aversion to it. It's somewhat like the talk that I, first talk I gave um, about finding the turtle and it taking me so long to figure out that I wanted to kill the turtle because I couldn't stand to see it suffering rather than to really see that I just wasn't able to open to its pain and be with it. So in some ways, I'm not quite sure what you're asking in terms of how you're reacting, but I would imagine that as, we, as you start opening in, in a more verbal way, um, to what people are going through, if you don't see clearly that it's just sadness or just fear or just agony, (laughs) 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 Um, there'll be a tendency to try to do something with it or, or close down rather than just to see it like one would work with it in one's own mind. Because in many ways, there's no difference. I mean, if it's your sadness or my sadness or your aversion or my aversion, it's just, it's the way we work with it, it's just the same. So you might be having aversion to the fact that coming out implies, there's an implication that there's going to need to be a lot more opening. <laughs> it's going to, it's just, it's going to kind of invade that sense of just it being an in, inner process. And that's, that's hard. It's hard coming out and having to open to the magnitude of suffering outside of oneself. It's the same process, so it's the same process of opening to whatever's there. I, I think that the difficulty that I'm addressing is that in interaction, that it seems to gain momentum as if it's happening too fast and too intensely. Um, right? It's different than just finding my own pace when I'm in silence. Uh-huh. Is there a fear in not being able to see it clearly? Pardon? Probably not even clear enough to have that fear. 
the fears of being um, overwhelmed, of being too vulnerable. In many ways, it, it just it requires trust. It requ- requires trust that either you will work with whatever's happening inside yourself, whether how one's reacting to it, and trusting that you'll be able to open to that. And trusting that usually what's happening for people is that their karma is unfolding. And so whenever somebody's going through something difficult, it's because of a previous action. And all one can do for somebody is offer support to be clear about what's happening. You can't make the pain go away. (laughs) Is that an answer? It could be. I don't know in Jennifer's case if that's what's happening, but we we can do that a lot. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Right. It's usually pretty hard to tell what another person's going through. I mean, you can. It's going to be quite interesting, I'm sure, for you to start finding out <laughs> what's really going on in each other's minds because usually it, it has no bearing on what one thinks is happening. <laughs> it's usually the opposite. <laughs> Ella? There's always this thing that kind of worries me, which is um, when we talk about the Sangha and then there's this feeling that there's this special specialization and that uh, you can't somehow communicate with people who aren't, you know, practicing meditation. And it, it makes me feel cut off from a lot of, I mean, it makes me worry because then I think, well, you know, the friends I have, I can't be friends with them mm-hmm. because, you know, they're not meditators and they'll drag me down, mm-hmm. and I'm supposed to, you know, cultivate spiritual friends. And, and, then, I, and then I think that, you know, that's kind of arrogant, I mm-hmm. guess, because there's plenty of wisdom in the world, and I just, but I worry about that. It just mm-hmm. does seem to be endemic that, you know, people hang out with, well, I guess you hang out with people coming just, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, in some yeah. ways, like, ideally, one would have the perspective, because it's true, that the Dharma is everywhere, and it is. And I've seen in my own life how it took, it's taken a lot of years um, to have the real strength of mind to see that. And so the Sangha is real helpful in terms of supporting one to keep looking. It's, it's, I'm not saying to drop one's <laughs> friends at all. It's just, it's nice to be able to stay in contact with some like-minded people. It's not to make like a special club. Um, I mean, for example, one time I was calling home and there was something going on for me and I was crying and, and my stepmother said, don't cry. You know, and she didn't, she didn't, she just didn't even want that to be happening. And so if you surround yourself with people that say, don't cry, or, you know, I don't want to hear about any difficulty, um, it can be very difficult to grow. So it's not to negate anybody or any being. It's more to know when you need to um, 
get the support from people that might have an understanding that will be helpful. Is that? Okay. You could talk on pointing to something that I'm having difficulty with at the moment. The retreat um, actually doesn't end for me for another month. And it's really clear in the mind that it's not particularly skillful to spend a week of talking right now. But there's, it's, it's so hard to let all these people go. Sumaita is saying that she's going to be sitting another month and is choosing not to speak this next week. And it's very painful um, to miss connecting in that way. Even yeah. you know, and I know uh-huh. from previous experience that really the most precious moments are the ones in silence. Mm-hmm. Time when someone opens the door for you because you've got a bowl in each mm-hmm. hand, and that actually the week of talking is really, in a way, very painful. But still, there's such a desire. It's like I want to, I want to line everybody up and give everybody a hug. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to talk to everybody and mm-hmm. find out well, what were you doing that night, you know? And <laughs> I came across you with your bowl, in there, you know, in the basement or something. I'm really having a hard time with letting that go, even though it's really clear to me that that this is what I need to do right now. I don't know what I'm asking. (laughs) I want to make it better. (laughs) 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 Well, in many ways, you're not really missing much. It's just, it's been my experience that it's not always, I mean, in coming out, I mean, my experience with being on staff and kind of really being interested in what was going on in the staff room, you know, while I'm on retreat over and over and then coming out and seeing that absolutely nothing was worth being there for. <laughs> I mean, you know, after a while, um, I'm not trying to negate that, but the, we're all here, you know, and you can connect um, in a way that, I mean, I'm sure everybody here knows and is supporting your silence as much as you can support the connection verbally. And probably many of them are wishing they were going to I think it depends on the depth of how stuck one is. Uh, Usually, there's nothing we can do when the mind is stuck until we are aware that it's stuck. If one's caught in thinking, there's usually not that awareness that one's caught until the moment that the awareness is seeing that. And then then there's all kinds of possibilities in terms of what one can do once one becomes aware of it. Until that point, ignorance is is going on, it's delusion. Um, At that point, it depends on how painful it is. If, If one's just kind of mildly involved in the drama and it's it's just going to take some noting, usually that will cut through it, just just staying Anger, 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 anger. And that usually, if it's mild, that will work. If it's 
stronger, it usually means getting the space that one needs to get to open to being stuck rather than the actual content of what's going on. So the best thing to do is to to drop out of the content of what's going on and f- get in get in the body with one's awareness. That's the first step. And then see how contracted one is. If if there's if there's such a knot that that it, you know one's just totally closed and one's totally just <laughs> I know you all know what I mean. You know when you're just totally <laughs> contracted. It's usually not possible at that moment to become microscopic and watch rising and falling. Usually that is just not a possibility because there's no space in the mind to do that. So what one has to do at that point is acknowledge that there's this huge contraction going on and open the attention a little to allow some of that energy to open being really careful not to indulge in the story because all the energy, if it goes into the story, will just keep perpetuating being stuck. It's being able to acknowledge where one is, in where, you know, depending on how open or, sh- or closed we are, it's being able to acknowledge that and then doing what works for you. It might mean doing walking meditation. It might mean standing. It might mean just noting. It really depends on what works. Out there. <laughs> I mean, I guess it's the same, it's to follow the same kinds of uh, guidelines, just in a different context. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes when one's out there, <laughs> things can be going a bit quicker. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> and so sometimes it takes a real uh, determination to get some time to kind of settle back and see what's happening. If, if you're just going 90 miles an hour, eventually it's going to catch up with you. Eventually that speed and, and not taking the time to really let stuff clear out eventually it will really catch up with you and you do something that isn't skillful. And it's very painful. It, it's, a, it's the same idea. It's like if you have the thought go through your mind that, you know, <laughs> I don't know why this keeps coming through my mind. I hate my mother. <laughs> I don't know why it's coming through. But uh, if that thought comes through, and then, you know, one's running around and racing around, and then you act on it, and you don't see that it's just a thought. You know, one can end up doing things that might not be very ecological. Maybe that's, it's real programmed, whatever it is. <laughs> it's been becoming more clear for me that what, needs, what I need to do is, is um, take moments, like in, in the meditation practice, between activities to be mindful of changing from one activity to the next. When talking starts to, to, to really be much more mindful of the changing phenomena. <laughs> is that something that has come up in previous integration weeks that people you know, find the tremendous need to stop and, and over? What kind of suggestions? 
I think Sharon's going to talk tomorrow about that. I think one thing that you'll be going through is this tremendous fear. Um, (laughs) And when it comes down to the actual actuality of what's happening, I think the fear will really diminish. It's, It's just like this pressure that builds up because you haven't spoken for so long. And Sharon will talk about how to work with it. One thing I wanted to respond to is that I think right speech is the hardest area to really bring an awareness to because one combines thinking (laughs) and speaking (laughs) at the same time and it's just so easy to just completely lose that there's even a body, never mind a voice. You know, there's just just this amazing getting caught in the whole process and to bring a real mindfulness to speech takes a lot of effort. That's another real power of Sangha, because if there's an agreement between people to try as best one can not to cause harm through speech, then there's some possibility for cutting through the uh, gossip. You know, gossip whether it, it can be very pleasurable, but it can be very destructive, and it's very hard not to... It's so seductive to get involved in it because it's so conditioned, and that's the area that, if I were you, I'd be putting my attention into. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, somebody said something really good yeah, in the group, the group we had this morning, and, and that's um, that it's really the attitude we bring to what's happening that is most powerful in our interactions. So the, the way you can affect your parents that's most effective is, is by living what we're doing here. So by, by, not, <laughs> by not reacting oneself to what they say, like that just your mother saying, you don't make small talk very well, it's just a thought. The other day I went to the clinic in Barrie and this little boy came up to me and he looked at me and then he looked at his mother and he said, I don't like her. <laughs> and I was just sitting there like, <laughs> Well, <laughs> I mean, I didn't do anything. I just was sitting there. I mean, <laughs> get out a mirror, you know. I really didn't know what was going on. And, and I, on one level, you know, in here, it was sort of like, oh, it's just a thought, <laughs> you know. But here, it's like, <laughs> he doesn't like me. <laughs> and, <laughs> And it was real powerful to just see that it was just this, you know, it was just all these little letters, you know, all these little words that came together. <laughs> I don't like her. <laughs> and it was so powerful, you know. <laughs> and so your mother's saying you don't make small talk very well. In many ways, you know, if you give that the kind of space I was talking about, that, you know, you just give that a lot of space, it, it's just... I don't like her. 
she doesn't make small talk very well, whatever. There's, it's really no big deal. Um, it's just a thought. I guess I'm inquiring <laughs> about, uh, because that we can take with, with everybody and everything in our life, that attitude. And, um, but is there, I mean, does the Buddha refer to some kind of special relationship with your parent? I, you know, I think there is, that. yeah. Yeah. So that's what I'm uh-huh. Well, are you inquiring about how to work with your parents in terms of reacting to the difficulty in them not being open to what you might be living, or is it how to actually um, approach from the Buddhist standpoint how to relate to parents? Because from the Buddha, okay. Okay, the Buddha talked about um, let me just backtrack a little bit. I don't know if he exactly said this, but if you have um, if you can reflect for some moments on how much your parents have done for you. So even if you kind of think about this situation, and how much work the staff put into caring for you, and how vulnerable and open one's become. In some ways, it's a process of becoming younger and younger and more and more infantile in terms of (laughs) vulnerability. And you think about how much your parents have done for you. It's just this... uh, it's not possible to pay them back. It's that much they've given. It's, and the Buddha said that it's just not possible to repay them in any way, because it's so great what they've done. And, and so the way, one way to work with that is to share with them the teachings in whatever way one can. Even if it's merely, like in my case, it's not so direct, it's much more that I share with them my attitude towards what's happening rather than bringing my father here, (laughs) which might happen, but it looks really doubtful. Uh, And so there's levels to what one can do with that. But Um, that's the way that one can start to pay them back. Yes? I wonder if you could say something about how to treat nature skillfully during intensive practice. I find the great temptation often to walk down to the lake trail in the woods. And it's a temptation to which I often in fact succumb. And, and yet, one part of me thinks that perhaps this is something that ought to be renounced as another kind of sense pleasure, so as to focus more clearly on, on the objects of meditation. I didn't hear the first part of your question when you first started speaking. How to treat nature, the outdoors, Okay. More skillfully, perhaps, than indulging. The indulgence is always when one is in pain and uses an object to avoid it. And so drinking a cup of tea can be an indulgence if what one's doing is using it to avoid. Because in that avoidance, one keeps perpetuating the cycle of samsara. So in many ways, if if you're using nature to avoid, you're just perpetuating your pain. And there's a way to work with it 
walking under the pine trees in the back here can be so soft and spacious and opening if the motivation is clearly seeing, acknowledging that I'm going there because (laughs) I need to soften so that I can open to any difficulty I'm having. The motivation isn't to avoid, but it's to be able to soften enough to open. And I use nature a lot because it's so... um, There's not much one's having to bounce off of except for just what is. And so it's just the wind, and it's just the um, bird song, and it can be very soft. It's really your motivation that counts. And in intensive retreat, the more one can learn to use the actual sitting and the actual walking to find that space and find that softness in, the stronger the stronger one's own inner softness can become. You find that kind of softness inside, that you can use it to learn to soften. One more. Not one more. What time Monday morning?